Amen and amen. We almost couldn't get the projectors working this morning. We had to call in Rick to uh, bring in his special touch, so we're thankful that he was uh, available this morning to come help us out and then get to where he was going this morning, but uh, I can't help but wonder that the enemy want us not to sing those songs today. Uh, you know, we can always have picked up a hymn and sung some songs in there, and that would have been fine, of course. Um, but I don't know about you, but I found those songs this morning to particularly draw my heart out in praise to God. So uh, we're thankful for that. Well, um, one, one uh, uh, quick note. I, if you came in and saw the basket of tomatoes back there, uh, it says, please take, take some. Um, that's for you to take home, not for you to throw at me. Um, those are from my garden, so they do not come after me. Um, so just, just to, to give that caveat there. So please, please take those. Um, we can't eat all the tomatoes that our garden grows. Um, so anyway, let me, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into God's word. <clears throat> well, Father, thank you for calling us to yourself for extending to us your grace rather than waiting for us to be worthy. We are reminded this morning that there is no sin that we could ever commit that would cause you to turn away from us. You will in no wise cast us out. We come to you through Christ, who is our Savior, who is the substitute, who took our sin from us and paid the price fully and completely, and when he finished, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit and breathed his last. And we are so grateful. And then three days later, rose from the dead to prove beyond a shadow of doubt that what he accomplished at the cross was enough. And God the Father was pleased. And based upon that truth and that reality, we come to you with a confidence of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. We come this morning with open hearts, with a desire to know your word so that we might live in accord with it. And so would you teach us here today by the work of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we ask this. Amen. <clears throat> well, let's see if we can't run through. We've covered 14 Old Testament books now in our expedition. We began with, of course, Genesis, the beginning. And, uh, and we saw that it was the, in Genesis, the beginning of all things, including this nation that God has chosen to work through when he made a covenant with Abram who would later become Abraham, and then through his seed, and as the family developed, we see the nation of Israel form. And so in the beginning of Exodus then, we find that the nation of Israel has grown from 70 to over 2 million people in Egypt. They're now in bondage, and God delivers them from bondage there. And then we come out into the wilderness, and we see the book of Leviticus, which is uh, not really a historical book, but it covers a month of time. But it's where God is giving the instructions to the people on how to live a holy life. And then we see in Numbers the years of wandering when that first generation didn't trust and believe God when he gave them instructions. And so God caused them to wander until they died and raised up a new generation. And we come to the book of Deuteronomy where Moses gives them the instructions that were given in Leviticus to this new generation, preparing them to enter the promised land. 
Moses dies, Joshua comes into power, and Joshua then leads them into the land uh, to conquer the land. They divided it up, conquered it, and then divided and settled it, giving each tribe an inheritance to go and drive out the remaining people. And then Joshua dies. And then we enter into the period of the judges where we find that every man did what was right in his own eyes. The generation after Joshua did not know God nor the things which God had done. And therefore they began to worship the idols of the people. Instead of driving them out, they embraced them. And they began to worship the idols of the land. And you see these sin cycles where there was rebellion against God. And then God brought retribution to them. And then they repented. And God raised up a rescuer, a judge. And then there was rest in the land until the judge died. And they went back, right back into idolatry. And that whole cycle went on and on and on again. But during this very spiritual dark time, there is a bright light. Her name is Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess leaves her people and her gods and comes to Israel and embraces Yahweh, God of Israel, and the people of Israel. And God brings Boaz into her life. And this beautiful love story is a story of redemption. And it's a picture of a, of a story of our redemption. Just as Boaz became the, the kinsman redeemer, and he redeemed her by marrying her and, and then purchased the inheritance that belonged to her family through her dead husband. Christ has brought us into a relationship with himself, redeemed us, purchased our salvation, and now we belong to him. We belong to the bride, the church, the bride of Christ. Well, through uh, that marriage, there was a son born, Obed. And Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. And we'll come back to David in a moment. And while that was all happening, we moved from the period of the judges to now for Samuel, and the period of the, the monarchy is established, where God raised up this boy named Samuel to be the first prophet in Israel. And the people cried out, we want a king like all the other nations. And so God gave them what they asked for. And so he anointed Saul, king, first king in Israel. Well, Saul did not trust God and believe God and obey God. And so God rejected him from being king and raised up a new king. And so Samuel anointed David, the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, to become the king in Israel. He was the most famous king in all of Israel. We'll move into 2 Samuel where we, we find David now reigns on the throne. And so 2 Samuel is the, is the story of David's reign. We see that that reign was filled with both triumphs and troubles because David didn't always do what God had asked him. He fell into a great sin of adultery and then he murdered. And as a result of that, the consequences of his life carried through to his family, and there was trouble in the kingdom and in his own family from that point on. Well, then we come to 1 Kings, where we see David's son Solomon reigns for the first 11 chapters. But when he dies, his son uh, Rehoboam does not do the, what is in the best interest of the people, and so Ten of the twelve tribes decide they're going to go do their own thing. And so the, the kingdom is divided between the north and the south. The north remaining uh, with the name Israel, the southern portion with the name Judah. And the, the lineage of David goes, continues through the southern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, they got their own kings. And they went from one monarchy to the next. And, and this rebellion against God continued, this idolatry continued to get worse and worse and worse. In fact, of all the, I think, 19 kings in Israel, not one of them was good. Not one of them sought after God. And so as we move into 2 Kings, this divided kingdom continues. And eventually, about halfway through, about chapter 17, the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians. Well, we see the surviving kingdom continues in the south, and they, they continue on for a little longer. And of all the 20 kings they had, only eight of them were any good. Only eight of them sought after the Lord and followed him. But eventually, because of their rebellion, God brought the Babylonians down, and the Babylonians took them captive. God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the, first, to the north and south during that period of time of the, of the kings, but they wouldn't listen. And so finally God said, that's it, I'm taking you captive. And then we move into that period of 70 years of exile. 
Well, after the Second Kings, we looked at First and Second Chronicles, which cover the same historic period of time as Second uh, Samuel and First and Second Kings. First Chronicles covers the reign of David, same historical time as Second Samuel, and Second Chronicles covers First Kings and Second Kings historically, but it's written from a different perspective. And so instead of being a more of a historical perspective, it's, it's more of a spiritual perspective, coming from a priest who wants to emphasize certain things. And so you read the same story, but you learn new things. And there's things that are highlighted in Chronicles that are not highlighted in Kings and Samuel. So that was the history. So now we're in this period of 70 years of exile. And that's when the book of Daniel takes place. Right? The, the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that fiery furnace, that takes place during that 70 years of exile. And, uh, of course, Daniel and the lion's den, all that happens during that 70 years of being away from the land. Well, then we come to the book of Ezra. Ezra picks up at the end of that 70-year period of time, and now it's when God is about to restore his people back to the land, just as he promised through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied before they went into exile that they would go. And when they went, they were to live in the land. They were going to be there a while. So make it their home. Pray for the king and the people there. And build your homes. But after 70 years, I'm bringing you back. And God kept his promise. Well, let me read a little bit from Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Burrow's book just to kind of give you a little more understanding of the book of Ezra. And then we're going to jump into uh, a few verses in Ezra. <clears throat> Ezra continues the story exactly where Second Chronicles ends and shows how God's promise to bring his people back to their land is fulfilled. God is with his people. <clears throat> and although their days of glory seem over, their spiritual heritage still remains, and God's rich promises will be fulfilled. Ezra relates the story of the first two returns from Babylonia, the first led by Zerubbabel, and the second led decades later by Ezra. Its two divisions are the restoration of the temple in chapters 1 through 6 and the reformation of the people in 7 through 10. And they're separated by 58 years, uh, during which the story of Esther takes place. This first section, King Cyrus of Persia overthrows Babylonia in 539 B.C. and issues a decree in 538 B.C., that allows the exiled Jews to return to their homeland. Isaiah prophesied two centuries before that the temple would re be rebuilt and actually named Cyrus as the one who would bring it about. Cyrus may very well have read that prophecy and responded to it in like kind. Out of a total uh, Jewish population of perhaps two or three million, only 49,897 chose to take advantage of that offer. Only the most committed are willing to leave a life of relative comfort in Babylonia, endure a trek of 900 miles, and face further hardships by rebuilding a destroyed temple and city. Zerubbabel, a prince of Judah, he was a direct descendant of King David, leads the faithful remnant back to Jerusalem. Those who return are from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, but it's evident that representatives from the other ten tribes eventually return as well. And so the ten lost tribes are not entirely lost. Zerubbabel's, priority, Zerubbabel's priorities are in the right place because the first thing he does is to restore the altar and the religious feasts before beginning the work of the temple itself. The foundation of the temple was laid in 536 B.C., but opposition arises from surrounding people. And so the work ceases for 15 years, 14 years. And uh, while, while uh, that is happening, you know, there's, there's things stirring among them. And then the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come and proclaim to the people that God wants them to start rebuilding the temple again. And so they listen. And they begin rebuilding. And then there's that gap of 58 years. And then you come to chapter 7. A smaller return under Ezra takes place in 457 B.C., 81 years after the first return. 
under Zerubbabel. Ezra the priest is given authority by King Artaxerxes I to bring people and contributions for the temple in Jerusalem. God protects his band of less than 2,000 men, and they safely arrive in Jerusalem with their valuable gifts from Persia. Many priests but few Levites return with Zerubbabel and Ezra. God uses Ezra to rebuild the people spiritually and morally. And when Ezra discovers that the people and the priests have intermarried with the foreign women, he identified with their sin, and he offers a great intercessory prayer on their behalf. During the gap of 58 years between Ezra 6 and 7, the people fall into a confused spiritual state, and Ezra is alarmed. They quickly respond to Ezra's confession and weeping by making a covenant to put away their foreign wives and to live in accordance with God's law. This confession in response to the word of God brings about a great revival and changes lives. And so we have this, this uh, book of Ezra, basically the rebuilding of the temple in the first seven chapters, six chapters, and the rebuilding of the people in the second, uh, last uh, four, four chapters. First return, second return, Zerubbabel, Ezra. These are the leaders of that. So now we come to a passage, a couple of verses actually, in the book of Ezra. If you would open to Ezra chapter 7, we're going we're to see this, this man, Ezra, a great man of God. And there are three times he prays to God that's recorded in, in these uh, chapters. We're going to look at those three prayers. They really only cover several verses. But we learn about prayer from this man of God. And so that's what we want to do this morning. I want to read verses uh, 1 through 10 of, of Ezra 7 first because we need to know who this man is. Who is Ezra? Why should we look to him as an example? Ezra 7, 1 through 10 says, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalun, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzzah, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. All that tells us is that he's of the line of Aaron. He has the right to be a priest. Remember, there was a time when they were just letting anybody be a priest. Ezra has the birthright to be a priest. Verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he, wrote, and he was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites and the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first of the first, for on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra, had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So who is Ezra? Ezra, descendant of Aaron. He's a, he has the, the right to be a priest, a high priest even, in the land of Israel. Secondly, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He learned the word of God. He was taught in the word of God. He spent time with the word of God. It tells us that the hand of God was upon him. God was with him and his hand was upon him to cause him to be what God wanted him to be. And then in verse 10, we're told three things about this man that we could preach a whole sermon on. One day, maybe we will. He set his heart to study the Word of God, the law of the Lord. He practiced it. And he taught it. This is what... Uh, 
should characterize every teacher, preacher of the Word of God. Set your heart to study the Word. Practice it and teach it. That's what we're all called to do in one form or another. But especially those who've been set apart by God and called to be a teacher of the Word of God, we must study to show ourselves approved unto God. We must put into practice, live out the Word. It's not enough just to say this is what it says. We've got to live it. People are watching. And then we want to teach it. We teach it to our children. We teach it to anyone that God allows us to have influence in their lives. Ezra is a great example to us. Well, three times in these passages, Ezra lifts up a prayer to God. And we're going to learn about prayer from Ezra. Come to verse, two, verse 27, 28. The first prayer we have recorded. This is a prayer in response to the decree of the king to send Ezra back. It's a prayer of gratitude. Here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord, verse 27, the God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. To adorn the house of the Lord which in, is in Jerusalem. And his extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Three things about this prayer of gratitude I want to point out. First of all, it was directed to God. He realized that it was God who moved in the heart of the king. He understood a proverb that we see in Proverbs 21.1 that says the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wishes. The heart of the king, even a pagan king who, who doesn't necessarily acknowledge God. The heart is like channels of water in the hand of God and God will direct it wherever he chooses. And this is what God has done, and this is what Ezra recognizes. And so he thanks God, blessed be the Lord, who has done such a thing as this. Now it's appropriate to show gratitude to people that God uses in our lives, that God works through to encourage us, to help us, to direct us, to teach us, whatever. It's okay, it's great to say, man, I'm so thankful that you were there to do this, but we've got to know it is the work of God. And we've got to give Him the praise, the thanks, and the glory. Thank you, God, that you brought that person into my life at that time to speak those words to me. Thank you, God, that you brought her into my life to encourage me, to pray for me, to set an example before me. Thank you, God, that he is in my life right now, that you brought this about. I look back in my life and I see key moments and key individuals that God brought into my life in those moments that I needed to keep me on the right path, to help me get back on the right path. People I don't necessarily have any connection with today. They're off doing their own thing somewhere else. I'm off doing my thing. But God orchestrated all that. And so praise be to God. And so we need to direct our thanks ultimately to God because He is the giver of all these good things. Second thing we see is that this prayer of gratitude recounts what God has done. It acknowledges what it is that God has done that we're giving thanks for. God has moved in the heart of the king and in the king's counselors and all the mighty princes. And he's extended this loving kindness to me, Ezra says, to me 
We've got to know what it is God has done. We've got to recount and consider what it is that we're giving thanks for. Because if not, if we're not continually reminding ourselves of the things which God has done for which we ought to be grateful for, then we're going to find ourselves thinking it's all about us and we're going to do our own thing and we're going to rebel against God. Richard Byrne, his book, Developing the Secret Closet of Prayer, put it this way. Where there is no remembrance of past mercies and no consideration of present blessings, there will be the certainty of future rebellion. Let me say that again. Where there is no, um, make sure I read it right, where there is no remembrance of past mercies and no consideration of present blessings, there will be the certainty of future rebellion. We must go to God with gratitude and extend our, our thanks for what God has done in our past and in the present, what God is doing. We need to acknowledge that. We need to recognize that and continually cultivate a thankful heart toward God. Third characteristic of this prayer of gratitude is it reflects upon the benefits for us. He acknowledges, I have been changed because of what God has done. He says, I was strengthened according to the hand of my God, the Lord my God upon me. And as a result of that, I was able to gather some faithful people, some men, and we were able to go back. He understands how what God has done has impacted his life. He was strengthened by the hand of God. We need to cultivate a heart of gratitude. This, these characteristics are a great reminder to us of how to pray a prayer of gratitude. Well, there's a second prayer in chapter 8. Verses 21 through 23. We don't, we're not given here the words of the prayer, but we see that he sought the Lord. And again, we can learn this is a prayer of petition. This is when he was about to leave Babylonia and head back to Jerusalem. And as he is ready to go, standing at this river, uh, Ahava, and scholars aren't exactly sure where that river is. It's in Babylonia somewhere. It might have been a tributary to the Euphrates or something. But um, they're standing here. They've got to cross this little river and then head out to Jerusalem. Ezra now has, has this group of people, right, and their families, and he's got a lot of possessions that the king has, has a, uh, given them, and all the people there have given them to take back, to put in the temple, and, and to worship Yahweh. And he realizes we're, we're going on a journey, and we don't have armed guards. We need protection. And so he says this, verse 21 through 23. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. <laughs> for I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we said to the king, well, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. And his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter. And he listened to our entreaty. The prayer of petition. First of all, it begins with a humble heart. 
Fasting is a physical demonstration of a humble heart of dependence upon God. It's a willing choice to go without so that I can depend on God. He knew they needed to be humbled before they approached God for this great need that they had. I tell you, I was, I've been so encouraged to hear from some of you about your experience when we, went, when we were fasting and praying back in, in the spring. A few people shared at the, uh, when we had the celebration of our, our burning of our, our, our uh, mortgage, and that was wonderful to hear. A few others of you shared with me personally how God was at work and what God has done to reveal himself and certain things in your life, as you intentionally sought the Lord through a humbling of yourself in fasting and prayer. God loves to hear the prayers of His people when we humble ourselves and cry out to Him in need. He loves those prayers. Too many times, our prayers are not necessarily what we need, but what we want. Too many times our prayers are, are not big prayers. They're things that we could probably do ourselves. Ezra knew they could not make this journey safely without God. God heard this prayer. We see that in verse 31. It says, Then we journeyed from the river of Hava on the twelfth of the first of the month to, uh, to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was over us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. God heard and answered their prayer because they came with a humble heart. Secondly, it seeks God for what we need. So let me ask you, what do you need? What do you need God to do that you can't do? Maybe it's something you've been trying to do in your own strength, but you can't seem to get past this thing. Maybe you need God to change somebody's heart. Maybe it's a co-worker, a friend, a, a, a relative. Maybe it's a child, a spouse, whatever. You, you, you know what needs to happen you can't bring it about. So what do we do? We humble ourselves. God, I, I, I can't do this. I have, I have no strength, no power, no authority to bring this about. But you do. I need this. This thing that I know will bring honor and glory to your name. I come to you for this. I lay this at your feet. God loves to hear the prayers of His people when we humble ourselves and pray things that are in accord with His plan and purpose. And then the third thing about this is it tests our faith. I love that Ezra said, I, I was ashamed to go to the king and, and ask for help because I already told him who my God is and what he's capable of. How could I then go and say, hey, could you send some troops with us? See, when we pray like this, we have to 
Believe God at his word. Is God really the God who holds the king's heart like channels of water in his hand and can move it however he wants? Does he really believe that? Does God hold the heart of that person that you need God to do a work in there? Does he hold their heart in his hand? Is he capable of that? We say we believe it. But like Del Tackett says in the, um, in the video series he does, uh, what's can't think of right now. Truth Project. He says, do we really believe that what we believe is really real? Do we really believe this stuff that we say we believe, that we, we, we quote verses and we, we use um, spiritual phrases with people? Do we really believe this stuff? If we did, we pray that way and we trust God. Then we get up off our knees and we begin to live as if God really hears that kind of prayer and really does answer it according to his will. And we'll live like that. With confidence, with hope, and with trust. We don't know the timing. We don't know how he's going to do it. But if we're confident in who God is and that what we're praying is according to what his word says, we can move forward with a level of confidence that God has got this thing. I don't have to fret and worry and keep stay up all night worrying about it. I really believe God, His Word. That's where this comes in. We need to trust Him to be who He says He is and to do what He says He will do. And our, our prayers should reflect that belief. That is the case here. That's kind of where the rubber meets the road. A prayer of petition. And then we come thirdly to the prayer of confession in chapter 9, verses 5 through 15. <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead and <clears throat> read the first, five, first four verses as well because we need to understand what's going on here. Ezra now and those who came, they're in Jerusalem. They, they've taken all the stuff they brought. They've accounted for it. They, they, uh, they, they wrote it all out, what they had there, and they put it in the temple. And now, <clears throat> verse 1 of chapter 9, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, Ezra says, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have, now, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the, of the lands according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, and they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. The leaders are doing it all. And when I heard about this, Ezra says, I tore my garments and my robe and I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and I sat down appalled that everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of this unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. And then verse 5, but at the evening offering I rose from my humiliation even with my garment and my robe torn, I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, oh my God, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have arisen from our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. <clears throat> Since the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, to plunder and to open shame as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in this holy place. That our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. To give us a reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our God, we shall say, 
What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded thy servants and prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with an unclean people of the lands with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their property, that you may be strong and eat the good things in the land, and leave as inheritance to your sons forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since the Lord our God has requited us less than our iniquities deserve, and has given us an escape remnant as this, shall we again, again break thy commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Wouldst thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there's no remnant or any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our guilt, for no one can stand before thee because of this. He says, here we go again. We just spent 70 years in exile, because we could not follow God's commands. And now God in his grace has extended to us and brought us back, and here we are doing it again. Ezra's not even guilty of this. But as a leader, he says, here we go again. He pulls the hair out of his hair, head and beard. Again, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, boy, is this not the United States of America? And shouldn't it be the church, the people who represent God, who are called to be the pillar and support of the truth in a culture that is very paganized? Shouldn't it be the church like Ezra that falls on our face before God and says, oh my God, look at what we've done. When is the last time you and I have done that? We'll get on Facebook and we'll complain and we'll tell everybody how bad things are. And we'll do all these things about complaining and complaining and complaining and say how horrible it all is. Not once. Ezra's not even talking to anybody but God. He's saying, God, this is what we've done. This is who we are. Oh, God. Do our hearts break like Ezra's at the iniquity that is just so infiltrated our, our society. Three things about this prayer I want to point out. One, it clearly articulates the sin. Lord, here we go again. The very same things that put us into captivity we didn't learn our lesson. We're back into it. We're marrying the people, intermarrying with this pagan people, mixing together light and darkness. He recounts the past as well as the present sin. They haven't learned from their history. As individuals, we need to recognize our own sin. We need to name it. This is, what, this is what I've done. This is my sin. We also have to recognize patterns in our life. We've got to know this is, this is not okay. This is sin. I've got to name it. God, this is what I'm doing. This is what I've done. This is where I'm at. I acknowledge this as it's not a mistake, it's not a tendency, it's sin against you. 
confess it to you, Lord. I agree with you about this sin. Secondly, I recognize the consequences of sin. This is... Isn't this not why you sent us in the camp? Isn't the consequences we've already experienced as a people? This is why we're in bondage. And now in your grace you brought us back and now we're going to do it again and we're guilty again? In fact, God, you should be so angry to the point of destroying us all. There should be no remnant. There should be none of us left. He knows what they deserve. Again, Part of our process of, of coming clean and being set free from our sin is that we've got to not only understand what it is, a holy offense to God, but what it deserves. If we're ever going to develop conviction about sin, we've got to understand the consequences. Jesus hung on a cross and suffered incredible pain and humiliation. And that's just the physical part of it. We, we cannot grasp this, but in God's, how this is possible, I do not understand. But to the best of my understanding theologically, I understand that when Jesus took sin upon himself, he and the Father experienced a separation for the first time in all of eternity. They were connected forever before. And in that moment, when Jesus said, why hast thou forsaken me? I believe there was somehow in God's economy that there was a separation between the, person, the, 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 the first person in the Trinity and the second person in the Trinity. How is that possible? I do not know but experience something on your and our behalf that he's never experienced before or after. That had to be so incredibly agonizing and, and that we can't even fathom. He did that willingly for you and me. That's what sin deserved. I recognize the consequences of our sin. And this is, I believe, why God allows us to continue to experience physical consequences of sin because he wants us to understand the reality of this. So that we, when we realize what it took for Christ to die for us, what it took for him to pay our penalty, we are overwhelmed by gratitude. And it motivates us to humbly come before him and trust him and walk with him and walk in that relationship. And thirdly, it acknowledges the grace of God. It says, God, you've been so gracious. You've given a remnant. But you might grant us a little reviving. That you might teach us, restore us, renew us. He recounts the past grace of God. He knows that as a people, they do not deserve God's kindness. But he comes with their sin lays it before God, believing that God is who he says he is, a kind, gracious God who forgives sin. And here's where it comes down for us. When, when it comes to sin and the consequences of sin, we are left to fall at the grace We cannot do anything to make up for it. We cannot do anything to deserve it. We cannot do anything over time to warrant and to, to, to convince God that he was, he was 
right in forgiving us because we really can be good. We can't ever be good by ourselves. It's only by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, He can transform our lives. But we've got to let Him do it. And Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. Right? But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. I give it over to him. And here's the thing that is so incredible that happened. Again, who did Ezra tell this to? God. He didn't stand up and preach at this point. He just came before God. And what happens? Chapter 10, verse 1. Now while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping, prostrating himself before the house of God, very, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And, she, and she, uh, she, Shechaniah, the son of Jehael, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. <laughs> God brought about a revival in the hearts of the people because of Ezra's prayer, not his preaching. In Nehemiah, we're going to see how the preaching brought it about. But here, we see it's from praying. How do we participate in revival that needs to happen in the hearts of people around us, in the hearts of, of this nation. How do we participate in that? On our knees. Weeping before God for the sins that are going on around us. Calling out. Confessing the sins of this, of this nation. The sins of these people that we are part of. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, right now, we bow before you in gratitude because you are the one who moves. And God, right now, I want each of us to think about one thing in our past that you did. We had nothing to do with. The person you brought into our life. A situation you orchestrated that had a positive impact upon us. I want to lift that up to you, Lord, in gratitude. Thank you, God. For you deserve all the glory. 